together but we still are the church and he is still here with us let's lift our voices and sing this morning he is good Lord you are good reaching out to welcome you God fill this place again with your song But I thought
come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling.
Good morning. It has been my pleasure to speak into your living rooms these three Sundays. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I will be back with you for a uh, Sunday in August. And so from now till then, I will certainly be praying for all of you at Redemption Bible Chapel, the leadership in particular, as you continue to navigate the troubled waters of COVID-19. We would certainly covet your prayers at Heritage College and Seminary, where I serve as the Vice President of Academics. As most of you probably know, mid-March, we cleared the campus and sent all of the students home, and we transitioned to alternative delivery systems, online education, and we ended out the semester and I think we did it well, and I think for the most part, students excelled and were satisfied. And we're certainly facing some challenges, unfamiliar territory as we anticipate the school year come September. And so we ask you to be praying for us that uh, we would know wisdom from above as we plan for on-campus classes while ensuring the well-being and the safety and the health of students and staff and faculty, while also allowing for contingency plans 
depending on exactly where we are at or where educational institutions are at in the province of Ontario come September. So be praying for us as we will most certainly be praying for you. Uh, today we're going to return to Philippians chapter 4 and we are going to complete our study of verses 2 through 13. A God of peace for broken relationships, verses 2 through 5. A God of peace for anxious thoughts, verses 6 through 9. And today we finish it off by considering a God of peace for trying circumstances, verses 10 through 13. One of my favorite hymns growing up, and it continues to be one of my favorite hymns. It just um, resonates. It... Uh, captures and expresses the sentiment of the heart so well and I'm sure many most if not all of you are familiar with it uh, just a brief stanza one of the stanzas from this well-known hymn is as follows when peace like a river attendeth my way in other words when all is well the sky is clear and blue overhead. There is a gentle breeze at our backs and smooth sailing ahead. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, now a tremendous contrast. We go from one extreme to the other and no longer that gentle, pristine water over which we are sailing unimpeded, uninhibited, no problems whatsoever. Now we are at the shore and we see the raging storm and the waves crashing against the shore, the winds howling all around us, the clouds descending and hiding all from view. Oh, and peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, wherever I find myself, days of prosperity, days of adversity, days of calm and quiet, days of turmoil, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Can we really sing that? Can we really say that? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I will confess to you this day that I can't always say that. I will confess to you, and I'm sure many of you will echo what I am saying. I struggle with this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, I have no problem saying it is well, it is well with my soul. But when sorrows like sea billows roll, I have great difficulty in acknowledging in proclaiming, in celebrating, it is well. 
it is well with my soul. I want to learn to be able to think like that. I want to be able to learn to approach all of life like that, whatever my lot, whatever it brings. And I'm sure some of you, this is resonating with you. You are right there with me. This has been a struggle. This is a struggle. The search for contentment, the search for this ability to declare it is well, it is well with my soul. So if you have found Philippians chapter 4, you already know now where we're going. A God of peace for trying circumstances. And as we go there, we go there with anticipation. I hope you do, I do. And we are looking then for teaching. We are looking for instruction. We are seeking biblical wisdom that we might indeed be able to take that hymn to heart. The words of that hymn, the content of that hymn, and truly be able to sing it. Sing it meaningfully, sing it intentionally, sing it joyfully, whatever our lot. Follow along then as I read for one last time, beginning in verse 2 all the way through to the end of verse 13. Obviously our concern, verses 10 through 13, but the whole section in its context. And again, listen carefully for those two phrases, the God of peace and the peace of God. Verse 2, I entreat Yodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence... If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Look very carefully at what Paul says. Go back up into verse 11, right in the middle of the verse. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul is in a prison cell in Rome as he writes these words. 
He writes this epistle to the church at Philippi, and one of the reasons he writes to the church is to thank them, is to thank them for their care, for their concern. They had sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, who had made that long, arduous journey from Philippi to Rome to minister to Paul in his hour of need. And so Paul says in the 10th verse, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Distance separated us. But what had they done? They had sent one of their own, representing the church as a whole, to go and minister to Paul. But now Paul adds this word of clarification. He wants them to understand, I wasn't struggling with discontent. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned. It's not a switch that he simply flicked on. But through his life experience, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He basically repeats himself in verse 12, rewording it slightly different. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. Now he repeats himself for a third time. Again, the word slightly, the wording slightly different, middle of verse 12, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You see, I get it. When peace like a river attendeth my way, at times in life, everything is great, clear, smooth sailing at other times in life when sorrows like sea billows roll this has been Paul's experience verse 11 whatever situation verse 12 I know how to be brought low I know how to abound still in verse 12 I have learned this secret note again the two extremes of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need he had learned contentment, how to be content whatever his lot so that he could say it is well, it is well with my soul. And then he adds in the 13th verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Please, brother, sister, do not rip that verse out of its context. That is not a mandate for you to take this verse and think to yourself, you can do absolutely anything under the sun because Christ will strengthen you and enable you to do it. That is not what Paul is saying. He makes the statement in a context. He has set the context that he has learned. He has learned contentment when times are good, prosperity. And he has learned to be content when times are bad, adversity. And the key to his contentment is this great truth that he can do all things. He can know this contentment. He can rest in God, his heavenly Father, the God of peace, because of Christ working in him and strengthening him to do so. I want that kind of experience. I want to be like that. I want to live like that. I want to learn to be content in whatever situation. Contentment, Jeremiah Burroughs, an old English Puritan, he defined contentment as follows. It is a quiet 
frame of spirit, a quiet frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And do you want to learn to be content? I want to learn to be content. So for the rest of our time today, let's, uh, let's have a little conversation and let's work through this. And I want to suggest to you, submit to you, again, let's just imagine we're having this conversation and we're struggling with this discontentment, uh, what some have called feverish fretfulness. And uh, we're turning to God's word. We're hearing Paul utter these words and we understand this is something that we learn. We'll be learning it our entire lives. And I want to submit to you that basically this contentment, this learning process is the byproduct of six lessons. Six lessons which Paul has taught us in his letter to the Philippians. Here is the first. If we want to learn to be content in whatever situation, here's the first lesson. We must learn to practice thankfulness. We must learn to practice, it's a discipline, to practice thankfulness. We must learn to turn our minds and our hearts to celebration, to rejoicing, to thanksgiving, even when we don't feel like it. We must turn ourselves consciously and consistently, reminding ourselves of God's goodness toward us in Christ Jesus, whereby we overflow with thanksgiving. That is not to deny the reality of the pain we're going through. That is not to minimize the grief, the sorrow, the anguish that we're experiencing. No, no, no. It is simply to affirm that even in the midst of the fog, even in the midst of the cloud, even in the midst of the valley, the midst of the darkness, we have to consciously and consistently remind ourselves of God's goodness to us and actively, purposefully practice thanksgiving. Andrew Davis in one of his books recounts the following incident. I was sitting in an airport, he writes, reading a book describing the Atlantic crossing made by the Mayflower in 1620. It detailed the heaving waves, the cold, seasickness, and impossibility of the pilgrims cooking any hot meals in the dark, foul-smelling, vomit-covered areas below deck where they endured the passage. As I was absorbed in this account, I overheard a well-dressed businessman walking by me, talking loudly on his phone about the experience he had just suffered. It was a total nightmare, he said. We sat in the plane on the tarmac for almost an hour before we were finally cleared for takeoff. Now I have an extra two-hour layover as a result. I laughed to myself as he angrily bustled by. The pilgrims had a 62-day voyage in the most wretched conditions, then landed on Cape Cod in November, quickly built some structures, and ended up burying 51 out of the 102 members of their community during the first winter. It's all about perspective, folks. It really is, as Christians. 
It is all about perspective. Again, do not misunderstand what I'm saying. It is not to minimize the problems we face. It is not to minimize the suffering we experience. It is, again, not to minimize or trivialize the pain and the sorrow and the anguish. It is simply to keep these things in perspective as we fix our gaze upon God's goodness to us. Oh, we need to remember. We need to remember God's love for us in devising our rescue, our rescue from sin, our rescue from Satan, our rescue from eternal death, our rescue from his wrath. We need to remember Christ's sacrifice, fully God, fully man, suspended upon Calvary's cross, crying out in anguish, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Forsaken so that we might be received. Oh, we need to remember and celebrate God's gift of his spirit and of his word. We need to remember those friends, many friends and mentors whom God has brought into our lives and used in our growth and in our maturity and in our Christian sojourn. We need to remember our local church where the word of God is proclaimed and the ordinances are celebrated and Christian fellowship is practiced. We need to remember how God has answered our prayers, how God has sustained our marriages, how God has protected us, how God has given us life and breath, food and drink, shelter and provision. We need to consistently, consciously preach these things to ourselves and then turn our hearts to practice thanksgiving. Thomas Watson wrote many years ago, discontent is an ungrateful sin because we have far more mercies than afflictions. This is a hard lesson. I'm still trying to learn it, okay? Here it is, a hard lesson. Anything short of eternal damnation is a mercy. We must never forget that as Christians. Anything short of eternal damnation, which is what we deserve, which is what we have earned and merited, anything short of eternal damnation, separation from the living God, is a mercy. Oh, if we want to learn to be content in whatever situation, we must learn to practice thankfulness. So we've covered that one in our discussion and we move on. And I suggest you look. Here's a second lesson that we must learn if we're going to learn to be content. Here it is, and we learned this in Paul's epistle to the Philippians as well. We must learn to cultivate heavenly mindedness. Look at what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. We need to learn what that means. Our citizenship, our eternal home is elsewhere and from it we await a savior the lord jesus christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body that's where our citizenship is 
That is our hope. That is an eternal perspective. That is what it means to cultivate heavenly mindedness. It is, live, it is to live not in the hope of what this life has to offer. It is not to live in the hope of what this world has to offer. It is to live in the hope of Christ's return. It is to live in the hope, this confident expectation of a glorious resurrection based on the unchanging word of God. This, earlier this week, I, I began reading uh, a book with uh, Emma, our youngest uh, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and perhaps some of you have read that. If you haven't, I, I would highly recommend it. And either you pick it up and, and give it a read. I, I'm working through sort of a children's version with her called A Dangerous Journey. So some of you dads, some of you moms, you might want to pick that up and read it through with your youngsters. Just be warned, there's some pretty scary well, I find them scary anyway. There's some pretty scary pictures in there, but you can cover them with your hand if they're too scary for you. But uh, there, there is a scene. I've read Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress at least a dozen times. And there, there are a number of scenes which get my attention and just hit me in the heart every time. And one is, is near the beginning of the book. Soon after Pilgrim, Christian, he leaves his hometown. It's called the City of Destruction. And he has decided he's going to head for the Celestial City. And he's joined in his journey by a man named Pliable, easily influenced, Pliable. And Pliable decides, hey, that sounds great, a celestial city. And he has uh, these visions, these ideas of a great life and of wealth and of ease and of health and of financial prosperity. And he thinks this is going to be wonderful. I'm in, uh, sign me up. And off they embarked then on this journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. Soon after they start, they fall into a swamp. It's called the Slough of Despond. And as they are struggling in the midst of the muck and the mire, and Pliable realizes, this isn't what I signed up for. Uh, I thought this was going to be a, a walk in the park. I thought God was going to make my life go well. I thought God was going to grant all of my wishes. I thought this was going to be pleasurable and easy and profitable, etc., etc., etc. And in the midst of that struggle, he turns to pilgrim, to Christian, and he cries, Is this the happiness you told me of? Is this the happiness you told me of? He turns around, crawls out of the swamp, and heads for home. But Pilgrim presses on, and he emerges from the other side, continues on that long, difficult, arduous journey. Why? Why does Pliable return home and Pilgrim presses on? The answer is simply this, heavenly mindedness. Pilgrim had his focus on the prize. Pilgrim understood that this journey, this life was not going to be easy. Pilgrim understood, contrary to much of what we hear within evangelicalism now, Christ has not promised us our best life now. The best life is coming. Glory is coming. The resurrection is coming. But the Christian life right now is one of wayfaring and warfaring. And how we need to develop and cultivate and learn heavenly mindedness if ever we are going to experience and enjoy contentment in this life regardless of what transpires around us 
in us, through us, in our life circumstances. If we're going to be able to sing when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That will only come as we cultivate heavenly mindedness. Our citizenship is not here in this world. And in all that this world has to offer, our citizenship is above. Here's the third lesson we must learn as we seek to learn and grow in contentment. We must learn to trust God's providence. Look back in chapter 1 and verse 29 at what Paul says there to the church at Philippi. A difficult verse, admittedly. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, wait for it, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted. It has been given, yes. It's even a little more significant than that. It has been determined. It has been ordained for you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Easy to say. Oh, you know it as well as I do. Extremely difficult to live. That God has ordained difficulty. He has ordained opposition. He has ordained persecution. He has ordained suffering for his people as a means for accomplishing his good plans and his good purposes for them and through them. We must learn to trust his providence. If we're going to do that, we must trust God and trust him because he is wise. Our knowledge is severely limited finite but God's knowledge is absolutely limitless will any teach God knowledge the answer is a resounding no if we're going to trust God's providence we must trust God because he is wise secondly we must trust God because he is sovereign we read in Job 26 that he hangs the earth on nothing how small a whisper we hear of him. Oh, believe this. God is unperturbed by the apparent chaos on earth. He is unperturbed by the havoc and the confusion. William Plummer has written, Wild confusion may reign around us, yet the hearts of the righteous rejoice because God is not and cannot be dethroned. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the blessed and only sovereign. Oh, we must trust him because he is wise, and we must trust him because he is sovereign. 
I gave a book recommendation a few moments ago, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Here's another one. If you're not in the habit of reading Christian biographies, I suggest you get in the habit of reading Christian biographies. Biographies on Adoniram Judson and Hudson Taylor and William Carey and Amy Carmichael and George Mueller and Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Oh, there is so much to learn from the lives and the testimonies of the saints who have gone before us. And one little book I read when I was a teenager and had a profound impact on me. The book is called God's Smuggler. And it's about a man, Brother Andrew. I can't remember Andrew's last name. He's Dutch. And this is after World War II, during the Cold War. Andrew, what he did was he would smuggle, hence God's smuggler, Bibles and Christian literature and other resources behind the Iron Curtain into the Soviet Union. And so he would fill up his car, the trunk or whatever, with all this literature and Bibles. He would drive to the Iron Curtain, whether it be East Germany or Hungary or whatever it was, and he would sneak all of this stuff across, make contact with believers inside the Soviet Union, and distribute this literature. And he did this for years. Tens of thousands of Bibles and tracts and other, other forms of Christian literature. When the Iron Curtain came down 30 years ago, a couple of years after that, Andrew went and visited some of these countries that formerly belonged to the Eastern Bloc. And he went into the offices of the KGB because he was interested to find, they had opened up, they had opened up their files, and he was interested to see if they had a file on him. He was interested to see what they actually knew as to what he had been doing all of those years. And to his shock, what did he discover? He discovered a file with his name on it. And he discovered that file was unbelievably thick. And he discovered that they knew absolutely everything. He hadn't hidden anything from them. In actual fact, he had never snuck one Bible into the Soviet Union. The reality was this. They never confronted him. They never arrested him, not because he was particularly clever, not because he deceived them and fooled them. They never touched him. They never arrested him because they couldn't. And they couldn't because God is sovereign. And God had his hand in it, and God had his plans for that brother, that missionary, his people behind the Iron Curtain in the Soviet Union. Oh, we must believe this. We must trust God because he is infinitely wise. Trust God because he is incomparably powerful. And trust God because he is absolutely sovereign. We must learn to trust his providence. If ever we are to learn to be content in whatever condition assails us. And here's the fourth lesson we must learn. We must learn to wait for God's promises. Look back with me at chapter 1, verse 6. Look carefully at what Paul says here. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What has God promised us? Oh, never lose sight of this, believer. Never lose sight of this. He has promised us, Peter tells us, he has promised us that he is preserving us. He is keeping us. 
He is guarding us by his power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. He has promised us, tells Paul, that until then, as we navigate this life, some conditions good, some conditions not so good, that this God is working all things together for our good, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. What is his purpose for us? It isn't earthly happiness, my friend. It isn't clear, smooth sailing. His purpose, good plan and purpose for us, Paul tells us there in the same chapter, Romans chapter 8, is to conform us. And he has predestined us for this. It is to conform us, make us like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he performs that great work upon us in this fallen world, as we await that final glorious salvation, he has promised us, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. Oh, we must learn to wait for God's promises. Years ago, it seems like a lifetime ago. I'm getting old. It seems like a lifetime ago. I was flying over southern Africa in a caravan. It's a single prop engine, maybe eight or nine seats. And I was uh, sitting up front with the pilot, whose name was Jay, a Mission Aviation Fellowship pilot. And there we were, two of us seated in the front of this caravan, flying over. It's the country of Angola. And it was clear, beautiful, sunny day. And halfway into our journey, all of a sudden, we hit a wall of cloud. And I, uh, I got a little nervous, and I sheepishly turned to Jay, the pilot, and said, well, well, what now? And he kind of looked back at me and said, what do you mean, what now? I keep doing what I've always been doing. I trust this system, this plane's navigation systems, and I just keep doing what I would have been doing if the sky were clear and blue, and we just press on and we wait. And we wait until I know it's time to land and our navigation systems will get us down. We wait until the cloud clears and we'll be able to see as far as the eye can see. We simply wait. The worst thing, he told me, the worst thing I could do now is start navigating by the seat of my pants. The worst thing I could do now is take over and ignore the guidance systems in this plane. The worst thing I could do now is try to navigate this thing by my senses. I would end up upside down, going in the wrong direction, and get us into all sorts of trouble. How true that is in the Christian life. When the cloud sets in and we can't see in front of us, our first reaction, our first response is what? We want to navigate by our feelings. Nothing wrong with feelings in their place governed by the Word of God. But a big problem when we let our feelings get the better of us and we begin to navigate by our feelings and we lose sight of those objective promises that God has given us in his word. And it is those objective promises, not our subjective feelings by which we must chart our course and by which we must navigate and on the basis of which we must simply wait. Wait for the fulfillment of God's promises and remind ourselves that the duty of waiting is attached to equally great promises. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 30, listen to these words. They who wait for the Lord 
shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Oh, that's the fourth lesson we must learn, to wait for God's promises. We've covered four, two to go, as we seek to learn to be content in whatever situation, following the example of the Apostle Paul. Here then is number five. We must learn to follow Christ's example. And you should be able to guess where we're going to turn in Paul's letter to the Philippians back to chapter 2, where he gives us that glorious example in such glorious detail. And he prefaces it all in chapter 2, verse 5, with this command, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What mind is this? It is the mind of Christ and that tremendous stoop he took from that crown of glory to that crown of thorns, that tremendous act of humiliation whereby the one by whom, through whom, and to whom are all things was carried in the womb of Mary, carried in the arms of Mary, the one who emptied himself. He did not cease to be who he always is, the great I am, but took to himself our human nature, body and soul, humbled himself to the point of a servant. I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Oh, such humility. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Oh, humility is the fuel, the fuel that energizes and propels contentment. Oh, it leads us to pray, my Lord, my Father, I do not understand how you could allow this, but I am going to bow. I am going to submit to your sovereignty, and I am going to believe that you know what is best, and I am going to pray, as your beloved Son has taught me to pray, our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Oh, that requires great humility. And a humility that only comes by way of the cross. A humility which only takes form, shape, substance in us as we've given it all to the Lord Jesus and we see his great love for us poured out upon Calvary's cross. You know, since this uh, COVID-19 and staying at home and all of that, as a family, we've been out walking. And then as the weather has got increasingly more pleasant, we've been out biking. We're like a little, the four of us go out after supper in the evening and we're like a little biker gang terrorizing our neighborhood. Not really, but you get the idea. And we're riding here, there, and everywhere. And one of our favorite spots of late, and we seem to end up there quite often. I know this is going to sound a little morbid, but it's the cemetery. And it's a cemetery because it's actually a very beautiful spot there in Hespler, in which is part of Cambridge. And there's, there's these little rolling hills and the lush green grass and the flowers and the trees. And it is sobering to pass through the cemetery, but it's a beautiful spot. But our, our last ride, as we we're making our way through there, I noticed there's a little portion of a cemetery with all these tiny headstones. 
And it is where they had buried a number of children back in the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. And these two little headstones in particular caught my attention. They were identical, side by side. They both had the same last name. It was Van something, followed by eight syllables. Really good Dutch name, Van something. And these two little infants, and I think the year was maybe 1947. This little girl had died less, younger than two years of age. A few years later, her brother had died less than two years of age. God help me if ever he were to lead me through something like that. You know, what caught my attention was this. At the base, at the bottom of each of these tiny stones, memorials for these children long gone, were these words, thy will be done. Thy will be done. I would like to have met those folks. Thy will be done. That is contentment. A quiet frame of spirit which freely submits to God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition of life. It does not mean there's no sorrow. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying. It does not mean there's no inner turmoil. There's no lament. There's no pouring out of the soul or grief. It, 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 does, not, it does not mean that there isn't those, those dark nights of the soul. It simply means this, that even in the midst of that darkness, we are able to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. We may not understand it. We're not called to understand it. We may not be able to unravel the mystery of God's providence. We are never invited to enter into the eternal realms of the providence of God. We are called to trust him. We are called to recognize that he is infinitely powerful. He is infinitely wise. He is infinitely good. And his plans and purposes far exceed our finite understanding and comprehension. And we are to rest in this and quiet our souls in this. And now we've come to the sixth and final lesson. We're going to have to learn. If we want to be able to echo the words of the Apostle Paul, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Then sixthly, we must learn to treasure Christ. Now think, where am I going to go in this little book for support for that? You know where I'm going to go. Chapter 1, verse 21, where the Apostle Paul declares, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. One of the old authors wrote the following, look on Christ, and view him in every way. Consider his person, who he is. Consider his offices, prophet, priest, and king. Consider his works as redeemer, reconciler, shepherd, advocate, or any other thing belonging to him. And you will find him altogether lovely. Oh, he is the pearl of great price. 
Oh, he is the treasure of inestimable worth because in the Lord Jesus Christ, in and through him, we have peace with God. The God of all creation, the God of this universe becomes unto us the God of peace. And because he is the God of peace in and through Jesus Christ, this great treasure, we know the peace of God in each and every circumstance of life. Jim Elliott, I'm sure you've heard these words before, he stated it so eloquently. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Oh, we must learn to treasure Christ. Let me conclude with the words from the hymn writer, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Now listen carefully. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Oh, our Heavenly Father, help us to take these truths to heart this day. We confess we are weak. We are fickle. We are prone to wander. And at times we struggle to understand. At times we have difficulty in applying. And so we pray that you be gracious to us this day, visiting us from on high by your Holy Spirit, speaking to us through your word. And may these precious truths be deeply rooted within each and every heart, old and young, man and woman, boy and girl that indeed Christ might be exalted in us. For your glory, for our good, we ask it as we praise you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give he is my joy my righteousness and freedom my steadfast love my deep and boundless peace to this i hope my hope is only jesus for my life is wholly bound to Oh, how strange and divine I can sing All is mine, yet not I But through Christ in me The night is dark But I am not forsaken for by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my
His power is displayed. To this I hope my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won and I shall Shall 